invite you to turn with me in God's Word to two books. The first is the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, and the second is the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. So again, if you missed it the first time, that's Deuteronomy 17 and 1 Samuel, chapter 8. Obviously, we have completed our study of the book of Mark. And as our pattern has been for the past four and a half years or so, uh, we return now to the Old Testament. Early last year, we looked at the life of Samuel, first seven chapters of First Samuel. And today we're going to pick up where we left off by looking at the life of Saul. Uh, chapter 8, beginning in chapter 8, continuing more or less to chapter 15. Now, when we pick up God's Word and we read a particular book in His Word and focus in on it, there are a number of questions for, to be exact, that we need to ask at the outset. Our answers to these questions will shed some light, shine a little bit of light on the book, uh, which will aid us in interpreting it and understanding it and applying it. Four questions. First is this. What do we know about the author? And so in the case of 1 Samuel, that's where we're heading. Uh, What do we know about the author? The answer is very easy, and this sheds no light at all because we know absolutely nothing of the author. Uh, It wasn't written by Samuel. Uh, Samuel, his death is actually recorded in the 25th chapter. He he may very well have provided some of the material which makes up this book, but he is not the author of this book, nor is he the author of 2 Samuel. We don't know who uh, the author is. His name is attached to these books because he is the first of three central key figures. Samuel, followed by Saul, followed by David. And Samuel is the prophet, the judge, who anoints these kings, both Saul and David. And so for that reason, his name is attached to these books, but he isn't the author. We don't know anything about the author. Question number two. What do we know about the context of this book? Now, this is far more illuminating. What do we know of the context of this book? In the year 1400 B.C., give or take a couple of years and a couple of months, uh, Moses led the children of Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt, uh, to Sinai, through the wilderness, 40 years. Joshua subsequently led the children of Israel across the Jordan, into the promised land. And then Israel embarks on what can only be described as one of its most tumultuous periods in its history, the days of the judges. And they last more or less 300 years. That period of 300 years of judges, you remember Deborah and Samson and others, Gideon, That period ends, you turn to the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, the very last verse, it ends as follows. In that day, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the author of the book of Judges, his commentary 
on the entire period. In our book, in our Bibles, Judges is followed by the book of Ruth. In the Hebrew Scriptures, Ruth is actually located elsewhere. And Judges is followed by, you guessed it, 1 Samuel. And so Judges 21 verse 25 sets the context for the book of 1 Samuel. The Israelites are in the land, ruled sporadically by judges. It is a very loose confederation. They constantly fall into idolatry. They constantly fall under the subjugation, the control of the inhabitants of the land. And God subsequently sends these judges to rescue the Israelites, to alleviate their suffering. And this cycle continues through through that 300 period. And that summary statement, that blanket statement encompasses the centuries. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And immediately we pick up the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. There is your context. That the nation of Israel, representative of humanity, representative of you and me, despite all of its blessings, despite all of its privileges, despite its close proximity to the living God, continually gravitates away from God to idolatry. That is indicative of mankind. It is indicative of us. And it demonstrates the need for what? God's king to rule in the hearts of men. That is the context. The third question is this. What do we know about the structure? The structure of this book. I want to make three comments, each important. The first is this. There is actually only one book. First and second Samuel aren't strictly speaking two books. As a matter of fact, we turn to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Hebrew Old Testament. They have all of the same books. But First and Second Samuel actually constitute one book. They were divided in two when? When the Hebrew Scriptures, this is maybe 3rd century B.C., before Christ, when the Hebrew Scriptures were translated into the Greek. We call that translation the Septuagint. Here's the thing. Well, why did they split it into two? If it was one book... Why two? Because in the Hebrew, there are no vowels. Hence, there are fewer letters. In the Greek, there are vowels. Hence, it doubled, more than doubled, the length of this book. And so they thought it was for more practical reasons. They thought it would be good to divide it into two. But it's important for us to grasp that in actual fact, what we perceive to be two books, they are in actual fact only one book. Second thing I want you to notice about the structure of this one book, First and Second Samuel, is this. I already mentioned it. There are key, three key figures. Their lives overlap. But these three men, these three central figures, unlock the structure of the book. You have firstly Samuel, who is the link between the days of the judges and the days of the kings, who is the first in a succession of a long line of prophets sent by God to Israel to call them back to covenant faithfulness, to the covenant into which they had entered at Mount Sinai. Samuel is followed by Saul. Saul is followed by David. These three constitute this one book, First and Second Samuel. Third detail I want you to notice concerning its structure is this. That if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, you will find a psalm. A psalm sung, uh, penned, we don't know by whom, 
but certainly vocalized by Hannah, a woman. You turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. There's this beautiful psalm. You go all the way to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 22, and you find an equally beautiful, a little more lengthy, another psalm, a psalm penned by David. And so what is one book, remember, 1 and 2 Samuel fused together, three central figures, Samuel, Saul, and David. This one book begins with a psalm, a wondrous celebration of God's greatness, Hannah. And it concludes with a psalm from David. That is informative. Do you know what it tells us? It tells us that as we read this one book, we should fall into the trap of thinking that it has primarily to do with history or biography. See, we might read it just thinking, well, this is just a boring historical record. Or we might read it and think, well, this is just a biographical sketch of three men. No, that psalm at the beginning... And that psalm at the end in which God's greatness is celebrated in both Hannah and David tells us that this book is to be interpreted theologically. This is a book, not primarily, principally about Samuel, Saul, or David. It is a book about God. And it is about God's wondrous works in the lives of those three men. Let me repeat them. Samuel, Saul, David as it pertains to the nation of Israel, and as it points to the coming of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We interpret these books theologically. These books, in the first instance, this book, rather, First and Second Samuel, has to do with God. God is the great theme of this book. The fourth question is this. What do we know of this theme, more specifically? Let me break it down into four. We need to approach it from four angles. First, historically, it traces the rise of the monarchy. That's obvious. It's evident. It traces the rise of the monarchy from the days of the judges to the days of the king. Two, theologically, it demonstrates that God is the only sovereign. He is the Lord of hosts. Three, prophetically, this book prepares for the Messiah. It prepares for the Christ, and it reveals him as our priest, as our prophet, and as our king. What he purchased as a priest and what he revealed as a prophet, he applies as a king. Fourthly, redemptively, this book shows us how God fulfills his promise. His promise to send a savior, Genesis 3.15. His promise to redeem, to save his people from their sin. It shows how God fulfills this promise specifically. He preserves his promise by ensuring that true religion isn't erased through Israel's constant apostasy. He protects his promise by ensuring that Israel is not destroyed by foreign powers. He prepares for the fulfillment of his promise by establishing a wonderful covenant with David. And he points to the fulfillment of his promise by establishing a succession of prophets who point to the Savior. And so our four answers, well, not so much the first one, our three answers to questions two, three, and four, they then shed light. They, 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 you think of this book out there, First and Second Samuel, and a pathway into this book, 
our answers to questions two, three, and four, they kind of shed a light on that pathway, that roadway, opening the door into it and guiding us in our interpretation of it. And so with all that said, we turn now to the texts in view. I ask you to find two, the first being Deuteronomy chapter 17. And I'm going to read verses 14 through 20. This passage is part of the Mosaic Covenant. So that covenant between God and the nation of Israel. And in particular in these verses, God has something to say through the instrumentality of Moses concerning kings, coming kings who will rule over Israel. Deuteronomy 17 verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, And then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Fascinating on so many levels. Follow along now in our text, 1 Samuel chapter 8, The very first verse. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons 
and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, every man to his city. Now notice briefly, quickly, uh, four things in this text. Get our minds, grapple with these four things. And I think we have a pretty good idea of its, of its thought flow and of its content. First is this. There's a request, isn't there? Uh, first five verses. A request. But before we actually get to the request, the author of the book tells us that Samuel is now old. And Samuel makes his first recorded mistake. Undoubtedly, he made other mistakes. But this is the first that is recorded for us in God's Word. And his mistake is this, verse, verse 2. He takes his firstborn son, his second son, Joel and Abijah, and what does he make them? Judges. He has no business doing this. Judges are not appointed on the basis of, of hereditary status. Now, one judge did not appoint his son to be the next judge, and so forth and so on. There was no such thing as succession when it comes to the judges. Uh, these two, Samuel's sons, were neither called nor qualified. As a matter of fact, they were godless men. There might very well be a lesson there for us, a lesson that we would do well to heed. We would do well to heed it within the context of the church when succession, that is appointment to ministry, to service, when it is based on entitlement, the result is always detrimental. The result is always corrosive. Our appointment to ministry, our appointment to service, our appointment to responsibility is not based on family relationships. It is not based on personal connections. It is not based on attendance records, nor is it based on financial contributions. We are not entitled to anything when it comes to God's house. We must be called, duly called, and duly qualified. Samuel makes a huge mistake. A mistake of gigantic proportions. He appoints his two sons. They're godless. Look at verse 3. His sons did not walk in his ways. That is his father's ways. They seized this opportunity to make a little profit. They turned aside for gain, after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. 
This situation, coupled with Samuel's age, leads to the request. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Here's the request. Behold, you are old. I don't know if Samuel was offended by that or not, but they're stating the obvious. Samuel, my friend, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Here's what we want. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. We don't want these judges anymore. We don't want it to be like it's been for 300 years. Here's what we want. We want you to appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. That's the request. Notice, secondly, there's a prayer. Verses 6 through 9, Samuel is personally offended. He's displeased. We read that right in the first statement of verse 6. So he pours out his heart to the Lord, and uh, he tells them, you know, give us a king to judge us. That's what they've said, and he prays to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say. I know this is going to shock you, Samuel. I know they've come to you requesting a king. And I know you're coming now and you're expecting me to judge them or you're expecting me to chastise them. You're expecting me to discipline them. You're expecting me to do something. But in actual fact, Samuel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. And Samuel, by the way, understand this, continuing on in verse 7. They have not rejected you. Samuel, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Boy, they have not rejected you. This isn't about you and them. This isn't between you and them. This is between them and me. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me. We get to the heart of it. From being king over them. It reveals the deeply laden idolatry within the nation of Israel. Now, we might think to ourselves, hang on a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. The request seems rather innocuous. Who cares? You know, as a matter of fact... Didn't didn't we just read from Deuteronomy 17? And in the law, didn't God make allowance for kings? As a matter of fact, didn't God himself say that a day is going to come when they will will want a king and they will appoint a king? Well, here's what the king is to be like. So isn't this part of the law? And and on top of that, didn't the whole period of the judges point to the need for a king? Isn't that the whole purpose? That 300 years, an abysmal failure of people constantly running to immorality and idolatry, absolute confusion, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Why? Because there is no king in Israel. I'm confused here. The law allowed for it, actually pointed to it. The, the days, the times in which they lived, three centuries, their own history points to it. And now Samuel has appointed two rascals as judges who are inept godless, and don't they also point for the need for this? And so what is wrong with the nation's request? As a matter of fact, I'll whisper this when I say it, it looks like a good request to me. It actually seems to make sense. It's in the law. 300 years of history points to the need for it. And Samuel's sons, well, they're certainly not up to the task. And so here's a good prayer request. Lord, give us a king. It's laden with problems. The, the, the issue is not the request in and of itself. The issue is what the request implies. It implies what? That the nation doesn't want God as their king. Nor does the nation want God's appointed one to be king. The nation wants a king like the nations around them. And in wanting that sort of king, 
they are actually guilty of idolatry, a, a, a sin which they have committed ever since God redeemed them from the land of Egypt, entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And you remember when Moses was away on the mountain in the cloud, in his absence, the Israelites played the harlot and made for themselves that golden calf. They prostrated themselves. Ever since that moment, right down through their history, through their wilderness journeys, the conquest of the land, the three centuries of the judges, now to this very request, they are revealing time and time and time again, what? Their propensity to idolatry. That they are inclined by nature away from God to the idolatrous. That's the problem. That's the issue. That's what God has to say to Samuel. And so he sends Samuel back to them. Verse 9. Obey their voice. Only here's what you're going to do. You shall solemnly, seriously warn them. How? Show them the ways of the king. Show them the ways of the king they want. In marked contrast to the ways God wants, as we read them in Deuteronomy 17. Show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. That brings us to a third section, the warning itself, its content. Begins in verse 10, concludes in verse 18. So Samuel comes back to the elders of the nation of Israel who have gathered at Ramah, and he gives this warning. He shows them what will be the ways of the king they want. They know the law, or at least they should have known the law. They should have run to Deuteronomy 17 and said, here's the man we want. God, give us this kind of man. Give us this kind of king. That is not the kind of king they're interested in. They want a king like all of the nations around them. And so Samuel warns them exactly what that king will be like, his ways. Notice firstly in verse 11, he will take their sons. Notice secondly, verse 13, he will take their daughters. Notice thirdly, verse 14, he will take their land. Fields, vineyards, orchards. Notice in verse 15, he will take the produce of their land. Notice in verse 16, he will take their servants. And then notice in verse 17, he will take their flocks. And if all of that weren't bad enough, he summarizes it all in that last statement, which we might almost be tempted just to skip over right at the end of verse 17. This king will take their freedom. You shall be his slave. Now, some of you Texans want me to go down the road here, which I'm not going to go down. I'm not going to be baited. But there is some relevance here, and this text does shed some light on our present current political context. You can meditate upon that and think on it and dwell on it this afternoon. Al Mohler has written... If there is no power higher than the state, then the state automatically becomes the highest power on earth. That is what God is warning them of. You are rejecting me. And in rejecting me, you are going to set a sinful man void of all godliness, absolute disinterest in my law, No interest in your best interest. No interest in upholding truth or goodness or all that is good, right, and true. You're going to set this man over you. Understand this, please. He will take everything from you. And he will eventually take your freedom. 
You see, it is absolute chaos. Where God is not king, the result is always chaos. Where God is not king, the result is always detrimental. Where God is not king and the man of his own choosing, where that does not take place and where God's word does not rule supreme, the result is always disastrous. That is the warning. But there's a fourth section, a refusal. Verse 19, they've heard it. They've got the law, Deuteronomy 17. They know what they should want. They've expressed what they do want. Samuel has come back, the word of the Lord itself, and he has warned them of what's going to happen. This this is mind-boggling. It is shocking on every level, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them. He goes back again. Another prayer, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord basically says the same thing, verse 22. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice. Make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Now, what sense, brothers and sisters, are we supposed to make of all that? What, what, what bearing has this on anything? If you were in the adult Sunday school earlier, you know the answer to that because I answered it in about an hour in some detail. That will eventually be on the, the church's website. I encourage you, if you missed it, to, to watch that and to listen to that. How... It basically answers the question, how are we to interpret the Old Testament? Uh, Where do we fit these stories and these narratives and these incidents and this history into the unfolding of God's work, his his plan of redemption? in, In a nutshell, briefly, when we approach the Old, that is the Old Testament, we always do so through the lens of the New Testament. And the lens of the New Testament brings it into focus and sets the Old Testament in its historical context and shows us, teaches us what we are to glean from it and points us in the right direction. And when we read the New Testament, we discover that it points us in four directions when it comes to the Old Testament. And if we keep each of these four directions in mind and apply them to this text, we, we, we remain on the straight and narrow. And we find very profitable and edifying answers. And so the first is this. The New Testament tells us, it teaches us, that when it comes to the Old Testament, we are to look for examples that instruct us. In the sermon notes, I've given you a text, 1 Corinthians 10.10. And I have written it out there for you. Paul states the following. Again, it's 1 Corinthians 10.10. These things happen to them as an example. He's speaking of Israel. He's speaking of the wilderness wandering. And he sojourn, and he's speaking of their idolatry, their sin. These things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. And so it is true. We can turn to the Old Testament through the lens of the New, and we can find examples in the Old Testament which are there uh, as examples for us that we might glean instruction from those examples. And let me just, let me just affirm four quickly from this text 
1 Samuel chapter 8. The first is this. Four lessons that we learn from this example. Number one, it is possible to be close to the church yet far from God. It is possible to be close to the church yet far from God. How else do you explain Samuel's sons? Their dad is a judge. Their dad will be, historically speaking, one of the greatest prophets the nation of Israel ever knows. How do we account for their utter and absolute godlessness? It is possible to be close to the church and yet far from God. That might be you, friend. Uh, It might be some of our young ones coming here for some time because mom and dad bring you. But maybe you'd rather not be coming here or maybe you do kind of like coming here, see your friends. Uh, Young people, you need to understand it, it it is close It is possible to be close to the church, yet far from God. Growing up in the church neither guarantees nor assures your salvation. It must be internalized. There must be faith and repentance. There must be a personal reckoning with the living God. You must come face to face with your own sin and utter depravity before a holy God. And you must turn in helplessness and hopelessness to Calvary's cross for salvation. Hanging out in these four walls for 30, 40 years is not going to do you any good. It is possible to be close to the church, yet far from God. Some of the older ones here probably need to hear that. You like church. You like the songs. Afterwards, I mean, isn't that what Sunday's for? Going to church and watching football. Oh, friend, much more is going on than that. Do you have a relationship with the living God? Do you know God triune? Do you know God through the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ? And have you been to Calvary's cross and reckoned there with your creator and your sustainer and your judge and found yourself wanting, found yourself severely and sorely lacking, and thrown yourself upon the mercy of God as it is offered to us, extended to us, the all-sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an invaluable example, isn't it, to glean from this text. It is possible to be close to the church yet far from God. Example number two that instructs us is this. A desire to be like the world is a deadly reason to do anything. A desire to be like the world is a deadly, I've chosen my words closely, a deadly reason to do anything. The Israelites want to be like the nations around them. Here's the problem. God had called them out from among the nations to be unlike the nations. He had called them to be a holy people. Do you know what holiness implies? It implies they be different. Friends, as the church and as the bride of Christ, we have been called to be holy, which by definition means we are different. We're supposed to stand out like a sore thumb. We're not supposed to fit in. People are supposed to look at us funny. The gospel is a scandal to those who are perishing. We are called to be a holy people. And a desire to be like the world is a deadly reason to do anything. And we would do well to employ some critical thinking when it comes to how easily we adopt, adopt cultural practices and philosophies in our own day. Example number three, for what it's worth, a heart fixed upon sin will not be moved by the most earnest of warnings. A heart fixed upon sin 
will not be moved by the most earnest of warnings. And so the nation, the elders, representatives of the nation, come to Samuel. Samuel, here's what we want. Make it happen. Samuel, aghast, flabbergasted, turns to the Lord in prayer. Do you hear what they're saying? Give it to them, Samuel. But before you give it to them, you warn them. Verses 10 through 18, what a dire warning. It's black and white, isn't it? There is no gray area here. I'm going to give you a king. Here is what it is going to mean. Listen carefully. It will cost you everything, including your freedom. And then the day will come when you will cry out to me, and I will not listen. Let me repeat it. A heart fixed upon sin won't be moved by the most earnest of warnings. They hear the warning through the prophet of the Lord from God himself. And their response is what? No. But we will have precisely what we want. We will have the king of our choosing, a king like the nations around us to reign over us. Friend, learn the lesson, please. It applies to many here gathered this very day. When the heart is fixed on sin, Oh, when the heart is fixed on sin, the ears are plugged and the eyes are closed. Sound reason is rejected. Common sense is disregarded. And past experience is ignored. As one old Puritan put it, all sin springs from this, the departure of the heart from God how we must make certain that our hearts are right in God's sight, that we as believers live before the face of God, that we develop by the Holy Spirit through the Word a tender heart, a tender conscience. Because I will tell you, there is nothing worse than an individual when their heart is fixed on doing something. They will not listen to the most dire warnings. There's an example that must instruct us and convey to us biblical wisdom. A heart fixed upon sin will not be moved by the most earnest of warnings. The fourth example is this. God disciplines us by permitting us to live with the consequences of our decisions. Many of us don't want to hear that, but there it is. I've said it quickly. Let me repeat it. God disciplines us by permitting us to live with the consequences of our decisions. Not all the time. Praise God, not all the time. But uh, many times, oftentimes, God disciplines us. He chastises us by permitting us to live with the consequences of our decisions. That is what he is doing here to Israel. Israel has come. They have sinned. They have again manifested their blatant idolatry in asking for this king like the nation's. God has warned them. They've insisted on their way. And God has said, let them have it. And by letting them have it, what does he do? He disciplines them. Disciplines them. And that discipline has a purpose. It is instruction. Christian, if you're stumbling over this, oh, that doesn't sound like grace to me. That doesn't sound like grace to me. That is grace. God disciplines all whom he loves. That's how we know we're his children. He disciplines us. He chastises us when necessary. He does. And he does it lovingly and graciously. 
Hear this statement. God punishes his enemies to satisfy his offended judgment. But he disciplines his children to sanctify their polluted hearts. Well, I'm going to repeat that one. Some of you are trying to jot that down madly. God punishes his enemies to satisfy his offended judgment. That's not what we're speaking of here in this context. God punishes his enemies to satisfy his offended judgment. But God disciplines his children to sanctify their polluted hearts. He disciplines us. Again, you know, we, you know, we don't want that to be right. We don't want that to be true. Oh, grace, grace. Yeah, that, does not, that doesn't sound like grace. Doesn't sound very, very loving. Where, where is God's goodness in that? Oh, friend, understand it oozes goodness. For God to leave us in our condition, for God to abandon us to our polluted hearts, that would be unloving. That would be a lack of grace. That would be contrary to mercy. But as any loving earthly father disciplines his children for their own good, so is who our loving Heavenly Father disciplines us when necessary. Not all the time, but at times, and we need to acknowledge this, and we need great spiritual discernment to perceive when this is the case indeed. He disciplines us at times by permitting us to live with the consequences, the negative consequences of our decisions. But He has that glorious end in view. It is to sanctify our polluted That's the first thing we're looking for when we turn to the Old Testament, according to the New Testament. Examples that instruct us. Secondly, we're looking for truths that encourage us. That comes out of Romans 15, verse 4. Whatever was written in former days, says Paul. In former days, that's the Old Testament, was for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so here's what I'm going to suggest, friend. If, you, if you're down in the dumps and you're looking for some real robust encouragement, you need your faith fortified and you need your hope strengthened, as we all do, more than we probably, probably admit or care to confess. If we're looking for encouragement, if we're looking for endurance, if we're looking for perseverance, please, friend, I beg of you, do not sit around waiting for some flighty feeling that you're encouraged. You get yourself into this book. And you understand that this book is designed by nature to encourage us. This book, the oracles of God, which gives an account, a detailed account of God's wondrous works in history. That is what our faith is to be fixed upon. And as our faith is fixed on a God who works powerfully and wisely, accomplishing all of his purposes in history. Historical record, we have it here. Our faith is fortified, and our hope is strengthened, and we derive encouragement. In the context of 1 Samuel 8, in the context of 1 Samuel, let me just give you a taste of this. God has made a promise, Genesis 3.15, that he will send a Savior to redeem his people from their sins. In this context, we see what? We see that God keeps his promise despite the nation's continual apostasy. Why doesn't he just wipe them all away? Right? Begs the question. God keeps his promise despite the anointing of Saul as king. God preserves his promise by subsequently anointing David 
from whom the Savior will arise. God preserves his promise by renewing the covenant of grace with David. God develops his promise by inspiring David to prophesy in the Psalms concerning the Redeemer. God develops his promise by ordering the construction of the temple at Jerusalem. God foreshadows his promise in the blessing experienced during Solomon's reign. And God honors his promise by calling a remnant in the midst of terrible idolatry and apostasy. See, this chapter, this book, is about the wondrous works of God accomplishing his purposes to redeem his people in his Savior. Hear the words of A.W. Pink. To depend. To depend upon an invisible God. And he is invisible, isn't he? To depend upon an invisible God for a blessedness that awaits us in an invisible world something we don't see, when in the meantime, he permits us to be harassed with all sorts of temptations, trials, and troubles, requires faith. It requires real faith. It requires supernatural faith. And is a faith that emerges from and remains stayed and fixed upon the word of God. That as we read a narrative like this and we see man's sin and we see his insistence upon rejecting God time and time again and we see God even disciplining them by granting their request for a king like all the nations, okay, I'm going to give you Saul and we'll see how this goes. And we kind of think man is in the driver's seat. But as we read carefully and as we look closely and as we study intently precisely what is going on here, we see a God who is enthroned in heavens above. We see a God who has declared the end from the beginning, declaring my will will be done. And a God who has implemented a wonderful plan of redemption in Genesis 3.15, who has now inaugurated it in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who will most definitely consummate it. From that, my faith will not be moved. That is the encouragement of scriptures. Well, hear the words of Jonathan Edwards. There have been many great changes in the world but they're all the turning of the wheels of divine providence to make way for the coming of Christ. That's that's how he sums up the Old Testament. There have been many great changes in the world, but they are all the turning of the wheels of divine providence to make way for the coming of Christ. I beg you, do not confuse encouragement with a flighty feeling because we are up and down like a yo-yo not just day to day, hour to hour. Encouragement is fixed upon the word. And we derive encouragement from the scriptures whereby we endure and we persevere. Why? Because scriptures testify continually and repeatedly to this unassailable truth that God reigns from beginning to end, performing his will among men. We look for truths that encourage us. Thirdly, as we peer through the lens of the New Testament to the Old Testament, it tells us in the New Testament we're to look for the Christ, the Messiah. John 5, 39, Jesus himself speaking. 
you search the Scriptures. That's the Old Testament. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. All of it, from Genesis through to Malachi, uh, the Old Testament, they bear witness about me. This book, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, this chapter, chapter 8, this very incident, it all points to Christ and to his kingdom. God established his kingdom in the Garden of Eden. Man's sin ruined it, obliterated it, marred it. And now God has embarked on this wonderful plan to glorify himself through his kingdom and through his king. There are five key phases. We have the kingdom promised. That gravitates around the life of Abraham. We have the kingdom foreshadowed. That brings us into the realm of the nation of Israel, and in particular, Saul and David and Solomon. Then we have the kingdom prophesied in Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of those other prophetic books in the Old Testament. And then we have the kingdom inaugurated with the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now here we sit and stand waiting for what? The kingdom consummated. The second return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all about Christ and His kingdom. The kingdom being God's people in God's place under God's rule. How does this story fit into that grand narrative? It's very simple. Saul teaches us what? This king whom God is going to give to the Israelites. Their desire for a king like the nations. It teaches us this. It points to our need for a perfect, human king. It points to our need for a king like the man God described through his servant Moses in Deuteronomy 17. A man who delights in the law of God. Saul points to our need for a perfect human king. A king to deliver us. Not from the Philistines or the Moabites or any of these other earthly enemies. But to deliver us from death. You see, our king is life. To deliver us from judgment, our king is righteousness. To deliver us from wrath, our king is peace. To deliver us from darkness, our king is light. To deliver us from ignorance, our king is wisdom. To deliver us from weakness, our king is strength. And to deliver us from despair, our king is hope. We look for the Christ. Fourthly, the New Testament tells us that we are to look for the gospel. Paul's words, 2 Timothy 3.15, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. This is Paul reminding Timothy from childhood, from a young boy. You were grown up in a godly home. And ever since you were a wee lad, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. In Christ Jesus. The Old Testament reveals the gospel. How does this incident, how does this narrative reveal the gospel? It's actually very simple. The elders of Israel gather to Samuel at Ramah, and their request, their demand is this give us a king. Give us a king. Blatant idolatry. Friend, look back. And there is an echo, echo through the corridors of time over centuries, all the way back to Eden, where Adam and Eve were determined to be what? Like God. That is to be their own kings. 
We don't want God as our king. We have that echo way back in the Garden of Eden, and we see it again now exemplified in the nation of Israel as representative of all humanity. Now you've looked back, now look ahead through the corridors of time and come to the governor's palace, Pilate. As Jesus, that bloody mass of flesh, stands there beside Pilate, and Pilate asks the Jews, what shall I do with your king? We will not have this man to reign over us. You see, from beginning to end, friend, that is the cry of secular man. That is the cry, if we care to listen to it, in the very pit of our hearts and our beings. We want to be like God. And that is the key message and the key lesson which emerges from 1 Samuel chapter 8. It is this, my friend. Who will you have to reign over you? I can state it slightly different. My friend, what kind of king do you want? Are you, have you insisted upon being king of your own life, living irrespective of God and his appointed king, the Lord Jesus Christ? Or in the words of the psalmist, Psalm chapter 2, have you prostrated and kneeled before the king and kissed him? Have you come in repentance? Have you come in faith? And have you understood that Jesus Christ is the prophet who reveals the way of salvation. Jesus Christ, he is the priest who makes the way of salvation possible. And Jesus Christ is the king who alone can apply salvation, whereby he reigns and rules in our hearts. Our Father, we do pray uh, this day, having heard from your word, that your spirit would come, and give understanding. We so desperately need our eyes opened and our ears opened and our hearts made ready to receive. And so pray that by your Spirit you'd work powerfully and sovereignly. And we pray that Christ the King would be exalted in our hearts. We're so thankful that he is our priest, the one who has paid the penalty for our sin, the one who has entered through the veil, the veil being torn, the one who presents himself before you and now makes intercession on our behalf. And we thank you that he is the prophet the one who reveals you and the way of salvation in your word, the one who sends the Spirit to illumine our understanding and to give us comprehension. We praise you that he is the great King, the King who defeats all of our enemies and delivers us from every opposition. And so we pray that he might be prized and highly esteemed in our hearts this day. And as we turn now to the Lord's Supper and as we celebrate that eternal covenant and all that he has accomplished in our behalf, we want to give him all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. And we do so in his most beloved name. Amen.